right, so if you guys would find the book of Leviticus, it's the third book in the Bible. Uh, today we are going where yearly Bible reading plans go to die, the book of Leviticus. No, uh, in all seriousness, Leviticus has a very bad reputation, and in fact, I feel like I contributed to that. Uh, we were doing a series a while ago on understanding the Bible, and apparently I had mentioned how hard Leviticus was so many times that one of our group members came up to me and were like, you must really not like this book. <laughs> I would like to just publicly repent for that now. If I've ever said this book is hard or whatever, just uh, I repent. Um, today, uh, I'd really, one of my purposes is to convince you that this book is full of the grace of Jesus and very applicable uh, to your life. And I want to convince you to read this book intentionally. And um, uh, I don't know if you've ever tried to read the book of Leviticus. It can be very hard. It's full of... Uh, rituals and sacrifices and rules that seem very strange to us. Um, it's difficult in one, in one way because we live in a different cultural and historical context. But I think there's another difficulty to Leviticus that we don't want to admit. Um, and it might be that because Leviticus is consumed with how holy God's presence is and how reverent we must be when we approach him. And uh, perhaps uh, one of our biggest problems in reading Leviticus is that we don't really feel that or sense that. We're like, sacrifice is ritual. What's the big deal about entering God's presence? Consider this quote just as we approach the book. Uh, it says, modern man, that's us, okay, modern man worships his work. He works at his play and he plays at his worship. He plays as worship. Can you see maybe just a little bit how relaxed and maybe casual you've been this week in your walk with the Lord? A lot of us are still chatting when corporate worship begins. We miss a few quiet times, don't really care. Um, we're playing. One of the beautiful things about Leviticus is that uh, I think it both really corrects this attitude with a right view of God and his holiness and what his holiness demands, and it shows how gracious God is in providing a way for unholy people to dwell in his holy presence. So uh, really quickly, uh, I just want to give us a little context for the book if you've missed and walk through the structure of the book. We'll read one short passage that I think uh, really gives a... Uh, um, a good picture of Leviticus, and then we'll jump in. So just uh, if you haven't been here or if you have forgotten, need a little context. We've done Genesis and Ex Exodus the last two weeks. Uh, in summary, very quickly, in Genesis, God creates a good world. Uh, people ruin God's good world through sin. And in Genesis 12, God promises to redeem his world by blessing the offspring of Abraham. That's probably the most important promise in the whole Old Testament. The whole Old Testament tells the story of Genesis 12 of God blessing the nations through the offspring of Abraham. Uh, Exodus tells the story about how these, this offspring of Abraham, this great people that came from him, these hundreds of thousands of people, became slaves in a foreign land in Egypt, and how God rescued his people for his glory from Egypt, how he invited his people into covenant with him. Uh, but two things happen at the end of Exodus uh, that make the book of Leviticus so important. Two things happen. First, uh, God commands that a tabernacle be built. Anybody want to take a gander at what the tabernacle was? Who remembers? Who's feeling brave? It's a tent. Okay, what kind of tent was it, guys? A big one. It was a big one. Very carefully constructed. Thank you. I feel illumined right now. All right. 
What was special about the tabernacle? Were they made the burnt offerings? Yes. It was, so, the, so the sacrifices and offerings were made in the tabernacle. Great. Tabernacle was the one place in the Old Testament world where God's presence would tangibly dwell. So it's important. We understand that obviously God's everywhere, right? He's omnipresent. But in the Old Testament, this is very important for the book of Leviticus, God's presence among his people would tangibly dwell in one particular place. First the tabernacle, later in the Old Testament, the temple. So that's important. We'll see that in Leviticus a lot. Uh, The second thing that happens in Exodus that's very important is that immediately God's people break the covenant in the worst way. The first thing they do as God's people is make for themselves false gods and have a giant immoral feast in honor of these false gods. And so there's this tension and this question that we leave Exodus with, and that is how in the world is this going to work? How are these evil, sinful, stubborn people going to be able to live in the presence of the God of Exodus, who is who he is? And that's what we get in the book of Leviticus. In fact, uh, the story of the Bible, the plot actually stops. We don't, we don't, nothing develops here. They don't move anywhere. God's people don't go anywhere. Nothing happens because this issue is so important. How can God dwell among a sinful people? Leviticus answers. It shows us God's provision, how God provides for sinners to dwell in his presence. Um, just want to highlight a resource here. If you guys are interested in learning what books the Bible teach, uh, there's this great thing on YouTube called The Bible Project, and they teach whole books of the Bible in eight to ten minutes with lots of pictures. Lots of pictures. It's great. It lays out books for you in visual ways. It's very helpful. There's also this great book called Visual Theology with lots of, anyways, good stuff, okay? But uh, one thing they point out that's very helpful for this book is that it is arranged symmetrically. So I'll point that out. So chapter one, chapters one through seven, talk about fellowship with God through the sacrificial system, through sacrifices. Chapters 23 through 25 at the end of the book, talk about fellowship with God through remembrance, through these festivals. A little bit closer to the middle, chapters eight through 10, the priests are ordained. Chapters 21 to 22, the priests are set apart. Chapters 11 to 15, talk about ritual cleanness. Chapters 18 through 20 talk about moral cleanness. And this whole symmetrical structure is helpful because typically what's in the middle is the most important. And right in the middle, middle of Leviticus in chapters 16 through 17, we see this ritual of the Day of Atonement, where God's people's sins are cleansed through the sacrifice of a high priest. And so uh, we'll see that. This is how God provides for people to dwell in his presence. So let's read, uh, go to Leviticus 19. Uh, we'll read... Uh, um, we'll read about 15 or so verses. Uh, this is a, a chapter in Leviticus in this section about moral cleanness, but it kind of gives us uh, both the demands and the reasons for Leviticus. We'll read that, and then we'll jump into a lesson on the whole book. Leviticus 19, we'll read through uh, verse 18. And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to all the congregation of the people of Israel and say to them, You shall be holy, for I, the Lord your God, am holy. Every one of you shall revere his father and mother, and shall keep my Sabbaths. I am the Lord your God. Do not turn to idols or make for yourselves any gods of cast metal. I am the Lord your God. When you offer a sacrifice or a peace offering to the Lord, you shall offer it so that it may be accepted. It shall be eaten the same day you offer it or on the day after, and anything left over to the third day shall be burned up with fire. 
If it is eaten at all on the third day, it is tainted. It will not be accepted, and everyone who eats of it shall bear his iniquity, because he has profaned what is holy to the Lord. And that person shall be cut off from his people. When you reap the harvest of your land, you shall not reap your field right up to the edge, neither shall you gather the gleanings after your harvest. You shall not strip your vineyard bare, neither shall you gather the fallen grapes of your vineyard. You shall leave them for the poor and for the sojourner. I am the Lord your God. You shall not steal, you shall not deal falsely, you shall not lie to one another, you shall not swear by name, my name falsely, and so profane the name of your God. I am the Lord. You shall not oppress your neighbor or rob him. The wages of a hired worker shall not remain with you all night until the morning. You shall not curse the deaf or put a stumbling block before the blind, but you shall fear your God. I am the Lord. You shall do no injustice in court. You shall not be partial to the poor or defer to the great, but in righteousness you shall judge your neighbor. You shall not go around as a slanderer among your people, and you shall not stand up against the life of your neighbor. I am the Lord. You shall not hate your brother in your heart, but you shall reason frankly with your neighbor, lest you incur sin because of him. You shall not take vengeance or bear a grudge against the sons of your own people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. Let's pray. Lord, uh, we thank you uh, in this passage and in this book for this picture of your holiness and how that should govern our lives. So we pray. As we just see here how you're holy and how you provide a way for, be, for us to be in your presence and how you call us to holiness of life, you would just change our hearts. We, we do pray for understanding. I just pray for um, you to help this seemingly obscure book really minister to us and become clear in our eyes. We pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. What you think of, and maybe even more importantly, what you feel when you hear the word holy or holiness says a lot about you. And I, I pointed out the, uh, what you feel, because uh, we could all on the surface agree that God's holy and holiness is a good thing and we should be holy. Um, but our gut reactions to that word and how we use it in everyday life might reveal what we really believe. Uh, some people act like holiness is basically Christian crustiness, boring, uptight, no fun, judgmentalism. We've all heard the phrase, she's holier than thou as if holiness is just being really judgy. You might feel that holiness is the bad news about God. Indeed, you've probably heard preachers say that God is loving, but he's also holy, as if those qualities of his are in opposition to each other. Um, you probably do not feel that holiness and happiness are the same thing. In fact, there's a, a good book about marriage with a really, really bad subtitle. It's called Sacred Marriage, and here's the subtitle. I think this is very bad. Uh, what if God gave us marriage not to make us happy, but to make us holy? In other words, they're not saying this, but they're saying uh, holiness is not happiness. Don't confuse them. Holiness must be a bad thing. I think maybe worst of all, and I, I, I used to do this a lot and still do sometimes, you might treat holiness like it's some unnecessary, almost comical thing that Christians can take or leave as they please. I remember in college, uh, whenever one of our friends would be doing something maybe a little extreme or radical for the Lord, we would make jokes about their holiness, like, you're getting super double holiness points right now. Or, you know, you are so holy. Um, 
but I think if we're honest, many of us feel like holiness is either something unpleasant or unnecessary or unattainable. And the book of Leviticus, um, and I think one of the, its best uses in the Christian life is to help us see two main things. First, that the Lord is holy and therefore holiness is required to enter his presence. And second, that because he is so good, in fact, because he is so holy, God provides a way for sinners to enter his presence. So uh, first, let's see uh, that Leviticus teaches that the Lord is holy. Now, um, just a little help on reading this book. I, I really want you guys to try to read the Old Testament. Um, and I want these lessons to help you do that. Uh, one thing that is really crucial and helpful for the book of Leviticus is to look for repeated words and phrases. Uh, if, you just, if you just get lost in trying to understand the offerings and what's going on, you're going to really struggle in this book. But if you look for phrases and words that are repeated, you'll see some big themes, themes come out. So the phrase that the Lord is holy, the idea of holiness is all over this book. But there's this section, uh, Leviticus 11 to Leviticus 22, where God, like we saw in Leviticus 19, uh, he gives the reason for everything God's people should do. Everything from being just to your neighbor, towards being clean when you come to the sanctuary, to uh, what you eat, towards how you arrange your calendar. Here's the reason. I, the Lord, am holy. That God's holiness is this thing that governs and dictates every dimension of the lives of his people. Um, why should Israel only eat certain foods? Leviticus 11.45 gives the answer. I am the Lord who brought you out of the land of Egypt. You shall therefore be holy, for I am the Lord. Like we saw in Leviticus 19.2. Why should we obey the Ten Commandments? You shall be holy, for I, the Lord your God, am holy. Uh, even bigger, in this section, um, this little phrase, like we saw in Leviticus 19, this little phrase, I am the Lord, occurs 33 times in 10 chapters. Over and over and over again, and all these requirements of what God's people should do, the only reason given is, I am the Lord. In other words, uh, God's presence, that the presence of this holy God should be enough, should be the reason for anything we do. So God's holiness is at the center of this book. And so I want to just take a step back and ask the question, what is holiness? This is a phrase that's really easy to under, uh, misunderstand or to not get. The word holy uh, means set apart or unique or different. There's a lot of words in Leviticus that talk about, that give the idea of holiness, something that's sanctified, something that's consecrated, these places that are special. But the idea is something that's unique and set apart. And when we say that, when we say that God is holy, uh, what we are saying about him is not that he's distant, but that he's different, that he's distinct, that he is unlike any other being in the universe, and primarily he is unlike us in his moral character and goodness. Um, there's this wonderful book that I think every Christian should read. I don't say that about lots of books besides the Bible, okay? Uh, it's called Delighting in the Trinity. It's this little 150-page book. It's got lots of pictures if you like pictures, okay? Um, it's, it's way more easy to read than the title makes it sound. But uh, here's what the author, Michael Reeves, says about holiness. He talks about how it means set apart. But he says this, There our troubles begin, because naturally, I think I'm lovely. 
So if God is set apart from me, I assume the problem is with him. His holiness looks like a prissy rejection of my happy, healthy loveliness. Dare I burst my own bubble now? I must. For the reality is that I am the cold, selfish, vicious one, full of darkness and dirtiness. And God is holy, set apart from me, precisely, and that he is not like that. He is not set apart from us in priggishness, but by the fact that there are no such ugly traits in him. In other words, what is God's holiness? It's his love. It's his goodness. It's the fact that at his heart, he's kind, and he overflows with life, and he loves to give. That's what sets God's apart from us and sets him apart from our world, that he is full and overflowing with life. So these two qualities that we've kind of set apart in our minds about God, his holiness and his goodness, or his holiness and his love, they are actually one and the same. They're the same thing. When we talk about holiness, we talk about the holiness of the Father and the Son and the Spirit who've always loved, who always pour out life. But it's the same quality of God's that makes him want to welcome sinners and makes him want to reach out to them and make him, makes him want to pour his love out on them that actually makes it impossible for sinners to enter his presence, right? What happens to an ice cube that goes into the sun? It dies. It's no more, right? Light always banishes darkness. Light and darkness cannot dwell together. God's holiness is not a bad thing about him. It is just pure, unadulterated goodness and love. And any sin, any impurity, any lack of love cannot dwell in his presence. We see this in Leviticus 10. Um, These two very important guys, Nadab and Abihu, two of the uh, sons of the high priest. Think of like the secretary of state's sons or something. Uh, They are killed by the Lord's presence. And what do they do to deserve that? They basically just casually walk into the Holy of Holies. They just kind of, they grab some incense sticks and they're like, dude, let's go make a sacrifice. Let's do this. And they walk into the Holy of Holies and they're killed by the Lord's presence. Afterwards, God says, among those who are near me, I will be set apart. And before all the people, I will be glorified. In other words, if you're going to enter my presence, you must set it apart. You must revere it. You must be holy to enter the presence of the Holy One. So just uh, before we move to the contents of the book, just a couple of things we can already apply as we, uh, as we think about this. I'll say this again. Um, the same quality about God that makes him loving, that makes him longing to pour out grace and kindness, is the same quality that makes it impossible for sinners to enter his presence, and that is his holiness. His holiness is his love. It is his life. It is his goodness. And personally, for you, the first step this morning, wherever you are uh, in relation to Jesus, the first step towards entering Jesus' presence is recognizing that you are not worthy of it and that you're not able to enter it on your own. Um, I think many days we are very much like Nadab and Abihu. We're very casual and irreverent. We don't sense our need. You might think, believe them, we're under grace. We know Jesus, right? But, but we can't know Jesus. We can't love him. We can't trust him. We can't see him until we see our need for him. And God's holiness and our lack of holiness shows us our need for Christ. So uh, the rest of the book of Leviticus, with this in background, that God is holy. 
It shows us that God graciously provides a way for unholy people to live in his holy presence. Believe it or not, Leviticus is full of grace. It might be a little hard to translate, but this book is probably the most gracious book in the first ten books of the Bible. Um, so, uh, I want to talk about the chief difficulty of uh, reading and understanding Leviticus. I'm going to try to use visual. We'll see how this goes. I, I made this up, so it could be very bad. Um, but um, why are there all these uh, offerings? Why do priests have to have certain clothes on? Why can Israel only eat certain foods? Why are there so many strange laws? Like, we get the moral laws. We understand lots of the, but why, why is everything else in here? And I want to direct you guys to my little, uh, my little bullseye here, okay? And I, I just want to try this. If this is terrible, just let me know. But um, in the Old Testament, all right, there were degrees of God's presence in different places of the world. I'm going to walk through them, okay? Here in the outer ring, we have his presence in the whole world, all right? And what do you have to do to live in God's presence in the whole, in, in the whole wide world, even as an unbeliever, and not get destroyed? You just can't be horrible. You just can't be terrible, right? Uh, God pours judgment out on people and on cities that are especially wicked. Sodom and Gomorrah is the best example. So all you got to do to live in the world and not be destroyed by God's holiness is just don't be horrible, right? Second, we have God's presence among the nation of Israel. So God said that his presence would specially dwell, not just in the tabernacle, but among the people. Here in uh, Leviticus, it's in the camp. Uh, when, they, when they would get the promised land, it's in the land. God's presence would specially dwell there. So as we enter this next, next level of God's presence, there are some new requirements, primarily the law, uh, the moral law, yes, but also the kind of strange laws, why you can't eat pork, why your uh, garments have to be of one particular fiber, all those things. Those are markers that reminded Israel we are living in God's special presence. All right, next level is the tabernacle, that tent of meeting, the place, you'd, the sanctuary, uh, where you'd go to make sacrifices, and what you'd have to do to enter that level of God's presence is either to be a priest or to be a person bringing a sacrifice. And finally, this final place, this one t place where God's presence would tangibly, physically dwell in the Holy of Holies. To enter that, you had to be the high priest and you'd come once a year. Okay, so I just want to pause because that, uh, if you don't get that, you're not going to get Leviticus. I just want to make sure everyone gets that. Any questions about that idea? All right, so uh, with that in mind, uh, and you're reading Leviticus, and you're asking yourself, like, why, uh, why could they not eat pork, but we could? Or why are they not allowed, why do they have to have only one kind of fabric? Why can their cattle not interbreed? Like, that is so weird. Why? It's because these are special markers of being a nation that lives in God's special presence. Um, and now, in an age post-Jesus, where God's presence dwells spiritually among his people from every nation and tribe and tongue, it makes sense that the moral laws would carry over and the ritual law not. So when you have that unbeliever comes to you and says, hey, Leland, uh, the, uh, the book of Leviticus says both that homosexuality is wrong and that eating pork is wrong. You believe one but not the other. You're being inconsistent. You're being a hypocrite. Well, actually, actually if you'd like an explanation, there is an explanation for that. Right? We're in a different era. Um, God's presence dwells in different ways. With that in mind, here are a few things that God provides for sinners to dwell in his presence. First, 
God provides sacrifices as a way for sinners to tangibly experience his pleasure and forgiveness. So the first seven chapters of Leviticus are about offerings. Um, and the first three chapters are about particular kinds of offerings. These are offerings where the worshiper would come and with the grain or animal they'd offer, they would express their thanksgiving or their love or their commitment to God. And uh, the details are overwhelming, but again, there's this repeated phrase in these uh, three chapters. Leviticus, uh, eight times in these three chapters, it says that the smoke and smell of the offerings are a pleasing aroma to the Lord. In other words, if you need assurance that God is actually pleased with you, that like he said in Exodus, that you are his treasured possession, here's what you do. You go to the temple, uh, you bring a sacrifice with you, and you smell it, and it smells good, and you remind yourself again with this tangible sign, God is pleased with me because I'm one of his people. He takes pleasure in me. He loves me. Chapters 4 through 7 um, are about guilt offerings and sin offerings. Uh, and again, there's this repeated phrase that really helps us over and over again with all these details. Um, it says, And the priest shall make atonement for him, and he shall be forgiven. That These offerings were instituted so that one of God's people who'd become conscious of sin, who'd become guilty, right? Are you feeling that this morning, right? Um, they could come, and through sacrifice, through a priest sacrificing on their behalf, they could experience the fact that they were forgiven. They could be assured of their forgiveness. So imagine tomorrow, your quiet time with Jesus is Leviticus 1 through 7. Who's excited? Um, but if you read carefully, and you think about what you, what you read, think about what, it, what this says. Through sacrifice, I can experience God's pleasure and forgiveness. Second, in Leviticus, God provides priests to represent his people and to atone for their sins. Uh, priests were to mediate between God and his people. I don't know if you've ever uh, had this happen to you where uh, you get this great benefit just because you know somebody. Like you get a job, not because your resume is great, but because you actually know someone who works or you, uh, you get set up on a date by someone else. Um, you have conflict and someone helps you figure it out. Uh, but there's a third party uh, that comes in between two other people and mediates. And um, this is what God does with the priest. He institutes the priesthood in Leviticus 8 through 10, and he gives some qualifications for them in Leviticus 21 to 22. And these were to be people whose entire lives were lived under these special codes of holiness so that they could represent the people before God and represent God to the people. They, they would be fit to make these offerings happen. Uh, they, they would be the guys whose entire lives were about making atonement and about making things right between God and his people. Imagine the gift of this. You're an Israelite. You can't come to the temple every day. You're a farmer. You've got to work. There's all sorts of things in your life you can't atone for every time they happen. And God has given you a whole set of people in your nation whose entire lives are about making sure you can be right with God. And these two ideas, sacrifice and the priest, come together in the center of the book in Leviticus 16. This uh, day of atonement. So once a year, the high priest was to enter the Holy of Holies, and he would offer uh, a bull to atone for his own sins first. He would make the altar, uh, everything in the, in, the, in the tabernacle, cleanse with blood. He'd cleanse it. And then he'd do this really strange thing. 
he would uh, take one goat and he would kill it. And he'd take another goat and he would confess all of God's people's sins over the goat and send it away into the wilderness. It's this ritual uh, that a high priest once a year would all of God's people's sins would be punished and removed. Once a year, God's people would be cleansed and pure before him, made right with him. So, first thing Leviticus shows us is that through priestly sacrifice, God graciously provides a way for unholy people to live in his holy presence. And in this way, Leviticus preaches to us. This isn't just about Israel. Um, Think about this. Do you want to feel and experience God's pleasure over you this morning? Um, Do you want to experience God's forgiveness this morning? Have you come here believing that oh-so-terrible lie that God is still mad at you about something that happened years ago? Or that you blew it last night and you're coming here this morning. You won't tell anybody. You're afraid to come into the light about it. Um, but you want, a, you want assurance that he still loves you, that he's still yours. Leviticus says that is available through priestly sacrifice. And what Leviticus preaches is kind of like the starting point. The rest of the Bible fills in the details. If you read, if you read the story of the Bible, this system works for kind of like a Band-Aid works. It doesn't heal the wound. Um, but Jesus, when Jesus came, the biblical authors consistently picture him as the sacrifice for sins. John the Baptist saw him and said, this is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. That Jesus is the one pleasing, perfect sacrifice that once for all makes it possible for God's people to enjoy his presence. And he's not just the sacrifice, he's also the high priest. The Bible says that Jesus, when he died and rose again, he has risen at God's right hand, and he is now a high priest interceding for us. Consider what uh, Hebrews 10 says in light of Leviticus. We've heard this passage preached on probably, but think about it in these Levitical terms. Therefore, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way that he opened to us through the curtain, that is through his flesh. And since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. This morning, full assurance, God's happiness over you, his love poured into your life, cleansing from your guilt, it's available to you. And it's not available by getting your, right, your life right. It's not available by just numbing yourself so you don't think about your past sins. It's available through the priestly sacrifice of Jesus, through seeing that by faith, through drawing near to him by faith, through trusting him. It's available right now. Come to him afresh. If you've been a Christian for a long time, come to him. You've got stuff in your life you need cleansing from. You need your fellowship restored with God. Look to Jesus as your sacrifice, as your priest. So, God provides a way for his people to be holy. He provides a way for them to come into his presence. In fact, a way, it's so interesting, even in, the, even in the Old Testament, how did God's people get in his presence? Through the work of others, right? It's the animal that's dying in the sacrifices. It's the priests that are doing all the work. God's people just show up. It's kind of how it is now. It's like, it's like, it's like faith now. You just trust Interestingly enough, uh, Leviticus embraces that tension throughout the whole Bible that 
though God provides a way for us to live in his presence, apart from our works, he calls us to live holy lives in his presence. We'll see that in a few ways in Leviticus. So uh, just back to the drawing. Uh, Don't forget uh, God's people as a nation, all right? They were in this special realm of God's presence. And so a lot of the laws we read in Leviticus, there's a big section on uh, ritual cleanness where uh, some very embarrassing things uh, Leviticus talks about, like uh, bodily discharges and skin diseases and having mold in your house and touching anything that's dead. Um, these things would make you unclean, unable to enter the sanctuary, unable to come close to the center of the camp. And the it's very important to understand that uncleanness was not sin. These weren't moral issues. In fact, uh, if you read Leviticus carefully, there's no way anyone could go their whole lives without becoming unclean. It's impossible. Uh, but they'd make, you, they'd make you unfit to enter God's presence. And, uh, you know, and if you waited a week and took a bath, you'd be clean again. It'd be fine. But I think, I think the idea is this. Uh, as someone who's got one of God's people, um, I have got to remember very carefully that God's presence is holy, that I don't just walk up into the, ta- into the tabernacle with no cleansing, that, I, I'm, I, that, that before I enter God's presence, I think back on the last week of my life, and I just make sure there's nothing I've done that have broken these laws, that I'm careful, that I'm reverent. Um, we see the same thing at the end of Leviticus in these laws that are seemingly unrelated to anything, uh, feasts and Sabbath days and day of remembrance. There are all sorts of things that uh, God called his people to do uh, to arrange their calendars around him. Um, there'd be seven feasts a year. Think about this. Seven times a year, the nation of Israel was to drop everything they were doing, all the important you know, work on their farms, go to wherever the temple or tabernacle was, and have a feast. Um, once a week, as a nation of farmers, where you can only work when it's right, once a week, you'd stop everything you would do and keep the Sabbath. Um, same idea here, though, right? You arrange your life. You arrange your calendar around the Lord. His holy presence dictates not just your morality, uh, but your rhythm of life. But there's also, of course, in Leviticus, the most approachable part is the moral cleanness he required, that God requires. Uh, the book of Leviticus, uh, chapters, they're kind of interspersed everywhere, but chapters 18, 19, 20, 21 are very uh, emphasized this moral purity. Leviticus 18 talks through sexual purity. Uh, Leviticus 19 talks about love for your neighbor, about giving to the poor, about doing justice. Leviticus 20 talks about God's people being separate from the cultures around them, from them looking at the people around them and saying, I will not be like that. Um, So again, there's this tension that I think runs in the whole Bible, but it's right here in Leviticus. God graciously provides ways for you to be made right with him, for you to enter his holy presence, to enjoy it through no work of your own. Really, kind of by faith. But he also requires that someone who's cleansed, someone who's made holy, that you live a holy life, that you live a life set apart from those around you. It's almost like we have faith and repentance right here in Leviticus. But let me just suggest three ways um, that we can uh, set ourselves apart this morning. All right, first, uh, set, be set apart by admitting 
your uncleanness, your unfitness to enter God's presence. Listen, you want to look distinct from people in 21st century America? Just confess that you're a sinner. I, uh, I, I get discouraged um, sometimes in my own life and the lives of other people when, we, when it's time in my small group or in relationship to confess sin to each other. And um, we're kind of like, hmm, when did I sin the last seven days? You know, like, like there's this complete uh, unrecognition. Uh, we we kind of categorize sins as these individual actions that we do and not this whole characteristic of being, of the way we live our lives. And I think, uh, and I don't know if this is in the text or not, but um, I think that these cleanness laws, like when a bodily discharge means you can't go into God's presence or when, you know, uh, you touch a dead body and you can't go. I think, I think these, uh, these laws give us a little hint that it's not just individual actions that are evil. It's what's inside of us. What comes out of us is nasty. And in fact, when Jesus uh, overturned the food laws in the New Testament, you know what he said? He said, it's not what goes into your body. It's what comes out of your heart. That's what makes you unfit for God's presence. I just say, listen, be set apart by taking one step towards honesty about who you really are this morning. Maybe you spend 30 seconds before we worship together, um, confessing sin to the Lord, asking for forgiveness. Maybe you take a step further and you find somebody in this room and you confess sin to them or ask them to pray for you. Second, be set apart by rearranging your lifestyle around the Lord. Listen, if the Lord expected an Old Testament people with no Jesus and no Holy Spirit to completely halt their lives once a week and literally do nothing once a week in a difficult world to live in. If they expected them to halt their lives and travel and spend a ton of money seven times a year uh, in rhythm, if they expected, and I, I didn't get into this, but there was this thing, uh, every seven years, the Sabbath year, God's people were called to not do any work for a whole year. That might sound great, right? But for God's people, if you're a farmer, that means if God doesn't miraculously provide, I starve. Once, once every seven years, totally halt your life. Listen, if God expected that of the Old Testament people who did not have Jesus, who do not have the Spirit in them transforming them, surely he expects you, if you know Jesus, to rearrange your life and to rearrange your life rhythm, not around what's most convenient or comfortable for you, but around his holy presence. Um, I think that I'm just... I'm going to speak uh, a little boldly here, okay? Uh, here's where America has gotten in the church. If you want to be a radical Christian, radical Christian, okay, here's what you got to do. Choose to travel less on the weekends and go to bed early on Saturday night so you can be engaged, fresh, and available to give and receive ministry on Sunday mornings. That's where we're at. People just don't regard the Lord's Day as, as a big deal. Travel. Now, some guys have work. I get that. But like, like we just travel. We go places. We don't really, we think, I'll be in church. You know, it's fine. Whatever. And, and you are living, I think, outside of God's rhythm. He's given you corporate worship as a blessing. Um, surely, surely, God can call me and require me to spend a little bit of my time each day pursuing him intentionally. Surely, right? So, guys, just, again, wherever you are, just take a step towards arranging your lifestyle and your life rhythm around the Lord. Maybe the step is, hey, listen, I'm just not going to travel a lot in April. 
I'm just going to can't. Or maybe maybe I already I made plans in April. I'm going to cancel all my weekend plans in May. I'm just going to be in church for four or five Sundays in a row and just see what happens. Or maybe I'm going to I'm going to set apart 30 minutes a day in my in my in each day to spend time with Jesus. I'm going to do it for the first time in my life. I'm going to commit to it. I'm not going to stop. Rearrange your lifestyle. God's holiness commands it. Third, uh, be set apart by love. Um, Leviticus, in this book that's so drenched in the Old Testament, highlights holiness as love. Uh, In Leviticus, being holy means being kind to strangers. It means showing justice and providing for the poor among you. It means when you see your enemy's donkey, the guy who hates you and who's after you, you return it. It means acting for the good of your community. Again, in my own life, sometimes when I think about holiness, I think, have I done anything really bad this week? And Leviticus would say, no, actually, are you living a life that is centered on the needs of other people? Are you actively seeking justice in your community? Again, just take one step towards a lifestyle of love. Think of one thing you can do today for the sake of another person you weren't planning on doing. Think of one practice you can put in your life on a weekly basis for the sake of someone else that you weren't doing. Maybe all these opportunities to serve we've been talking about, maybe just take one up one time. Show justice to the poor in our community. Okay, God calls us to be set apart. So in conclusion, uh, one of my favorite parts about studying these books so carefully uh, brings the New Testament to life. We've already seen that happen in Hebrews. But consider this passage that I think, I think we almost everyone knows a little bit of Romans 12. But consider again Romans 12 in light of Leviticus. And uh, in, in, in if you're not familiar with Romans, Paul spends 11 chapters basically talking about the sacrifice of Jesus. And here's how he transitions the book to how Christians should live their lives. He says this, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. So the life of a Christian is based on the sacrifice of another. It is based on the death of Jesus given freely. But the life of a Christian is also a sacrifice itself. What does a Christian look like? It's someone who lays their life on the altar. Someone whose life, in a sense, is burnt up. And that burning up, that pouring out of life, it's a pleasing aroma to God. The paradox in Romans 12 is that unlike all of the sacrifices in Leviticus that died, the sacrifice of a Christian is a living sacrifice. That as you pour your life out and lay your life down, God gives you his holy, good, full life. So in light of Leviticus, set your eyes on the perfect priestly sacrifice of Jesus and go live your life as a sacrifice today. Let's pray. Lord, uh, thanks for this book. And uh, we just pray um, that any insights we've had this morning or any ways we felt your spirit move us, uh, that we would just we would obey you and, and move with you. Uh, I pray for people here who are discouraged. And I just ask that you would give them a renewed sense of your pleasure and your joy over them and their forgiveness. I pray you'd uh, just help us to be different and to be set apart from the people around us. I pray that in Jesus' name. Amen.